chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. While you're turning there, how many of you think, by raising your hands this morning, how many of you think that YouTube is a waste of time? Okay, whoa, look at Everybody look around. Keep your hands up, okay? YouTube is a waste of time, okay? All right, now you can put your hands down. Uh, I'm just going to create controversy here this morning. Here we go, all right? How many of you think YouTube is a time saver? Is YouTube a time saver? Look around, everybody. The same people who raise their hands about YouTube being a waste of time are not raising their hands about being a time saver. Okay, put your hands down. How many of you think that YouTube saves money? Okay. Got a few people like, yeah. Depends on how you look at it, right? Now, YouTube, there are all... I'm going to preach on YouTube this morning. Everybody ready? YouTube, depending on how you look at it, can waste all kinds of time. You can spend hours upon hours upon hours looking at absolute nothing. Okay? It's entirely possible. It all depends on how you look at it. You can waste so much time, and I waste so much time on YouTube that sometimes it just flat out bothers me. Like, what have I been doing? However, YouTube has saved me so much time and so much money. Say, how in the world can that even be true? Because through it, I have learned how to fix my car. I remember I had a brake job to do, and uh, I thought the caliper was seized. So I was getting ready to go buy a new caliper, and I was like, I'm just going to check YouTube real fast. And so I typed in the problem, and the first video I typed in, or clicked on, was a video that said there might be something in the tube that runs from the, the uh, reservoir to the caliper. And I did the test that the guy told me to do, and sure enough, instead of buying a whole new caliper for several hundred dollars, I bought a tube for like $25. And it saved me all kinds of time because if I'd have tried to replace the caliper, I would have still had the same problem. I learned how to fix my dryer from it. I, we, we were talking, my wife and I were talking about buying a new washing machine and dryer because we've had a few problems with them both lately. So, I mean, even if we buy a used washer and dryer, what are we looking at, 600 bucks for something used? And so I went and I tore this thing apart and it was a pulley. A, I think it was $9.00. I just saved myself 600 bucks, people, because of YouTube, okay? YouTube. I've learned how to fix washers, dryers, cars. I mean, I've learned how to install things properly instead of doing them three to four different times. YouTube saves me time and money. You may not agree with that, but it all depends on how you view it. Literally, because it's a viewing platform, okay? That pun totally intended. YouTube is one of the most used websites of all time. It is second only to Google, and Google owns YouTube. It is used incredibly. Now, while YouTube is extremely helpful in the practical things of life, like how-to videos, what if I told you that there was a how-to that would radically alter your life for the better? What if I told you that there was not just a YouTube video, but there was something that would change your life for the better? How many of you would want to be better parents? Anybody? How many of you would want to be a better grandparent? 
Okay, how many of you would want to be better spouses? Every husband should raise their hand right now. Just do it, okay? You'll save yourself time and money later. <laughs> how many of you want to be better with your finances? Okay, how many of you want to be better coworkers? <laughs> how many of you want better coworkers? Again, how many of you want to be better soul winners? How many of you want to be better leaders? How many of you just want to be better? We all do. I think all of us sitting here, for the most part, we all want to be better in some way, and we know that. But sometimes this is what we think. If I could just watch a video that would tell me how to be a better parent. I subscribe to several emails uh, that, that deal with marriage, that deal with parenting, that deal with leadership. And every time I get one of those emails, I think, man, if they could just give me one piece of information that I can take and use and implement into my life, I want to be better. If I could just learn something new, I would be better. If I could just learn or if I could just be reminded, then I would be better. I need lots of reminders, okay? And so sometimes I think, man, if I could just get reminded of this truth over and over and over again, I would be better, Sometimes we think if we could just have someone to keep us accountable, we would be better. Keep us accountable. Sometimes we think that if we could just see something from a different perspective, that we would be better. And I'm not trying to diminish these things. All of these things are true. All of these things have helped me in my life completely and utterly. But let me ask you this question. Have you ever gone to, let's say, a couple's retreat? Or... A conference, we, we have conferences here, men's conference, or maybe you're just sitting in church and you get something and you leave that conference, you leave that couple's retreat, you leave whatever you've been at, youth conference or something like that, you leave that and you think, man, I am going to be the best husband in the world now. Man, I'm going to be the best teenager in the world now because of what I have just learned from these conferences. We all have been there. We've all been at an altar and prayed, and we've all uh, knelt down and said, God, I'm going to be better. I'm going to change. I've had my heart stirred. Something is going to be different this time. I'm going to do so much better. Have you ever made it at least a day after that, doing what you said you were going to do? How about a week? For sure, we never, probably never made it a month. And before long, what happens? We've given up, right? Ah, not worth it. And actually, we, we may change for a little bit, but then somehow we go back to what's natural to us. Listen, I am naturally a certain way. And as much as I try to change, I fail. And often, if I keep failing, I'm going to end up going back to what's natural to me. And what happens when we do? What happens when we do? Things actually get worse. When I come back from a conference and I think, oh man, I'm going to be a better husband. And I try to be a better husband and I try to do better. Listen, something is inevitably going to happen in that first week and I am going to give up and then it's going to actually, I'm going to actually be a worse husband. I'm going to continue to do things that I want to do. We get worse and so much so that we even think or say, it's not even worth going back there. I, I know that there have been times I'm like, ah, why am I going to this conference? I know it's a waste of my time. It's, it's never going to work. 
As much as I want to change, as much as I want to be better, it just ends up worse than before. It's not worth learning anything else. I think if we're all honest, we've all been there to some extent. To where we just think, man, what's the point? But Jesus teaches us today how we can overcome this paradox. How we can overcome this issue in our life. And he gives us an incredible lesson on radical transformation. He gives us a lesson on radical transformation. So if you would, Luke chapter 11, look with me in verse 14. Luke chapter 11 and verse 14, the Bible says this, And he, being Jesus, was casting out a devil, and it was dumb, meaning it couldn't speak. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. But some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of devils. And others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. So there's not much to be said here other than Jesus performs another amazing miracle. And the Pharisees, again, don't like it. I don't know if you've seen a theme over this last several weeks or not, but Jesus does something spectacular. The Pharisees get upset. Just happens and happens and happens. So they begin to blame him. And not only that, they shame him. Blame and shame. And he begin, they do this in front of everyone. And they do this by saying Jesus is casting out devils by Beelzebub, the chief or the prince of devils. We see prince of devils in another passage. Now this is where most of you are going to turn me off, right? If you're watching a YouTube video, you're double tapping the side, okay? Ten second skip. Okay, don't do that. Okay, stay with me. Stay here. But in order to understand the end, you have to listen to all of Jesus' teaching. When I'm watching a YouTube video, I skip to the end. Get me to the part where I need to fix this, okay? You have to understand this all the way through in order to get this transformation. Every word that Jesus says here is important. Everything he says is going to progress us down the line a little bit and help us understand how we can be transformed. So stay with me. Number one, I want you just to see the division. The division. Jesus was the master of deductive reasoning. He was the master of if-then statements. So look at all of these if-then statements. Verse 18 says, if Satan also be divided against himself. Uh, verse 19, and if by Beelzebub. In verse 20, but if I with the finger of God. He's the master of deductive reasoning. He will walk through. He will get you to think of things very simply. But Jesus is really creating a division. He's creating, if you will, a dichotomy. He's separating two things. He's making sure that it is absolutely true and absolutely feasible what he's doing. Notice verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. Verse 20. But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. It is absolutely true here. Jesus is making a division. He's making a statement that if you are divided, you cannot stand. 
If our church is divided, it will not stand. If your family is divided, it will not stand. If our nation is divided, it will not stand. There needs to be unity. There needs to be unity in our church. There needs to be unity in your family. There needs to be unity in our country or they cannot stand. But I want you to notice just one word, and he uses it several times here, and that's the word kingdom. Kingdom. Every kingdom divided against itself. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? I want you to understand this morning that there is a kingdom of Satan and there is a kingdom of God. Don't miss this, okay? There is a kingdom of Satan and a kingdom of God. Again, don't skip past this. This is important. There's a kingdom of Satan and a kingdom of God. These two things never work together. These two things never work together. They are at constant war. The kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God are constantly at enmity with one another. One is always trying to conquer the other. Go back to the beginning of time in Genesis. You'll see Satan trying to overtake God. It's the classic good versus evil. So classic. So one kingdom is fighting in the other kingdom. But if one kingdom is fighting itself, obviously it will never stand. If Satan is fighting against Satan, that kingdom will never stand. But Jesus is going to further divide. He's going to further show the division, and he's going to apply it. Look at verse 21. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. Now just think about this. You have a strong man. He's armed. He's got guns he's got knives he's got bazookas tanks you fill in the blank of what he has he's got all these things and he is armed and he's ready and what the bible says here is he keepeth his palace he's protecting it he's keeping it what happens his goods are in peace everything's safe right but notice verse 22 but when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoil. Woo! So everything that I trusted in is now being pushed aside. Everything that I thought I was leaning upon is now being pushed aside. Now hold on. Who's Jesus talking to here? Help me out. Who's Jesus talking to? The Pharisees. This is pointed directly at the Pharisees. Listen, Jesus has a habit of putting his fingers in our face and saying, this is your problem. This is you. Jesus is pointing directly at the Pharisees and he's in essence saying, Satan is strong. Satan is strong. And as long as everything is going his way... He's happy. As long as his pawns, as long as his demons are doing what they are supposed to do, Satan's happy. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. He's the prince of this world. And everything is all good until a stronger one comes. Any idea who the stronger one would be? This is where Jesus steps in. This is where Jesus steps in, and notice verse 22, but when a stronger than he shall come upon him, 
and overcome him. And he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. This is where Jesus steps in. Jesus is the one that will overcome Satan. He is the one that is getting ready to spoil Satan's work on earth. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, you see it on the screen here. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. You see, Jesus is getting ready to show them openly, hey, I'm going to defeat you openly. Satan is going to try his level best to keep things the way they are. Satan is going to try his level best to keep things exactly how he wants them. He is the God of this world, and he wants to keep it that way. Satan wants to make sure that man is subject to him. You. He wants to make sure you are subject to him. He wants to do that, and he does it. And so what does he do? He blinds our minds. Satan keeps us ignorant of Jesus Christ so that we won't turn to him. Listen, even when this story was written, even when this story was written, Satan was trying to keep people from believing in Jesus. How? Through religion. Uh-oh. I just said that out loud. He's trying to keep people from seeing Jesus through religion. He was trying to keep them from seeing who Jesus truly was, but Jesus Christ was going to bruise the head of Satan, as Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 tells us. He was going to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was the Son of God. He was going to provide a way for each and every person to ex escape the grasp of sin for all eternity. Please don't forget this. Jesus is getting ready to do something extremely important. Please don't forget this. It's going to be extremely important in just a minute. Look at verse 23. The Bible says, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth. Now this furthers the divide even he that is not with me is against me. This is a very bold statement. You're either with me or against me. You're either gathering or you're scattering. There is no in-between. There is no neutrality. There is no compromise. There is no middle section. You are either with Christ or you're against him. Now hang on. Every single person that sits here has an image in their mind of exactly who the person is that is with Christ. We, we understand, we, we think about who it is, and we got this wonderful picture of a godly, holy person. I can almost tell you, in everyone in your mind, I can almost tell you exactly who you're thinking of. You're thinking of a Pharisee. Oh, hold on. Don't get offended yet. Because I'm telling you, back then, who were the godly people? Who dressed the part? Who looked the part? Who walked around and talked the talk and walked the walk? And who looked like they had everything all together? I guarantee you who it was. It was the Pharisees. Outwardly, they had everything going on. Outwardly, they were doing everything they were supposed to do. But the Bible says in Matthew chapter 23, inside of them, they were as dead men's bones. 
you're whited sepulchers. You look beautiful on the outside, but inside there's something dead inside of you. Absolutely religiously perfect. They dressed the part. Every detail of the law was, law was done almost to perfection. So I ask you the question, can religion be against Christ? Can religion be against Christ? Yes, indeed. In fact, religion has been one of the best uses, tools of Satan. Satan has blinded their minds through religion. 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 He has scattered so many because of religion. If you're in the habit of writing things down, write this down. Rituals of religion can cause you to forget about the real relationship. Write it down. Rituals of religion can get you to cause, can cause you to forget about the real relationship. Now this is where we seriously need to begin looking deep within ourselves. This is seriously where things need to start beginning to look inside. Many of us would never say, I am against Christ. Many of us would never say that. We would never say we are against Christ. We're trying to do right. We're trying not to be bad people. We may say that we're not really with him, but we're surely not against him. We may not be walking with him, but we're surely not against him. This is not what Jesus is saying here. He is not leaving any room for neutral thinking. Most of us try to live our lives somewhere in the middle, don't we? We try to live a good moral life without being too radical. Hold on. Don't, don't shut me off yet, okay? Stay with me. We try to live good moral lives and, and do good things and be nice to people and not be bad people, but just live not too radically. We don't want to be called radical. So what happens is sometimes we, it's been said this way, we have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And so we're living this way. We one foot in the world. Yeah, we're in the world. We watch the things the world watches. We listen to the things the world listens to. We do some of those things, but we come to church every Sunday. And I try to live a moral life, and I try to live a decent life, and I try to be a good father, and I try to be a good husband, and I try to work my finances the best I can to the best of my ability. Do you see the problem? The whole time we're trying to do what we are trying to do. We're trying to put on a facade. We're trying to work it out. We're trying to do it outwardly. We go to church. Or we watch church on Sunday. But we live like the world the rest of the week. We'll even say I want to receive something on Sunday so I can be better at those things. Listen, it is my goal, my privilege, my honor to stand here every week and try to give you something in your life that you can use in your life every single week. But what we are doing is we are treating the Bible and we are treating Jesus like he's just a moral teacher. When we approach the scriptures, okay, God, give me something that, you know, help me to be a better father. Give me something that, how I can treat my children just a little bit better this week, or help me to have something from your word today that will give me a little bit better handle on finances. Now, don't get me wrong, the Bible's full of those teachings. 
But again, if we're being honest, we'll look at those things and we'll start to implement them and then we'll fall off. We'll try to be a good husband. The Bible tells me I ought to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Listen, I'll be honest with you. I'm not very good at that. Because I like me. I don't want to give myself over. I don't want to submit myself to that. I don't want to in honor prefer her over me. Are you kidding me? I'm the man of my house. I know what's right. Oh, see what I mean? So I can do it for a little bit, and in areas that I want to do it, what happens is we make the Bible and we make Jesus a moral teacher. Albert Moeller defines moralism as this. Moralism is the belief that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. The gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. Listen to me, there's no doubt that a life with Jesus will have morality. A life lived with Jesus will have morality, but Jesus, hear me, Jesus is not in the reformation business. Hold on, he's in the transformation business. Listen, don't miss this. Jesus is not in the reformation business. He's in the transformation business. Jesus wants to radically transform your life. He doesn't want you just to be a better father. He wants to transform your fatherhood. Jesus doesn't want you just to be a better spouse. He wants to transform your marriage. Jesus doesn't want you to just be better with your finances. He wants to transform your finances. He doesn't want you to completely or just be a better leader. He wants to completely transform your leadership. Hear me, Jesus doesn't want improvements in your behavior. He wants to transform your character. Jesus doesn't want improvements in your behavior. He wants to transform your character. He wants to make you different than you were before. Some of you might be listening to this and you know that's exactly what you need. You need transformation. You don't need reformation. You've tried to reform. You've tried to get better. You've tried to be a better father. You've tried to be a better husband. You have tried everything you can try, and by now you're just like, ugh, what's the point? So what do we do? Number two, very simply, we've seen the division. Number two is the decision. There's a division. What's your decision? Jesus illustrates this point with the man that he had just cast a demon out of. Look at verse 24. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. So stop there just for a second. The demon has been cast out of this man, this dumb, and we find out in another passage he's also blind. He, we cast him out. The man can immediately speak. He can see. He's going. It's wonderful. It's awesome. It's powerful. It's amazing. And this demon is out there wandering in the spiritual realm. And so what does this man do? He cleans up his life. He gets a job. 
starts working. Maybe he, like the blind Bartimaeus, he begins following Jesus and walking with him. And he dresses properly. He looks better. He acts properly. He says the right thing. And by all accounts, outwardly, he has been changed. It's an amazing story. But look at verse 25. So this this demon in verse 24 says, I will return unto my house whence I came out. Verse 25, and when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Ah, it's all cleaned up. Perfect, right? I cleaned up my life. I got it all fixed. I got it all separated. But I want you to notice that he doesn't find, he doesn't find anyone else living there. Did you notice that? He says, I see it swept and garnished. He doesn't find anyone else living there. He just sees an outward change. The result is verse 26, excuse me. Then goeth he, the demon, and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. Watch. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. The devil finds it swept, garnished, and says, this looks really fun. Let's make it a frat house now. He brings seven other demons, so now there's eight of them, and they completely and utterly decimate this man, leaving him worse than he was before. I started off by asking, have you ever felt like you tried to do something and then the end was worse? Let me ask you these questions. Do you ever feel like things in your life are just getting worse? Do you feel like your marriage is not getting better but getting worse? Do you feel like your finances are getting worse? Do you feel like your kids are getting worse? Do you feel like your view of other people is getting worse? If you haven't noticed, do you feel like our country is getting worse? Worse, the world getting worse. Everything in life sometimes just seems to be getting worse. And here's the problem. We keep cleaning up the mess. Sweeping it along, fixing this, fixing that, fixing this, and here and there and everywhere. But we never replace it with the right thing. keep trying to make moral reform we keep trying to make parental reform we keep trying to make spousal reform we keep trying to make economic reform we keep trying to make political reform but all we are doing is just cleaning it up here's what we need to do we need to invite jesus in to transform we need the strongest one we need the strongest one to come in and to make his, excuse me, make my heart his home. We need Jesus to come in and do that. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 tells us that he's knocking at the door. Let me in. I'm here. I'm knocking. I'm waiting. I want to come in. Would you please let me in? He's knocking at the door of our heart. Please let me in. And most of the time we think that's about unsaved people. Revelation chapter 3 is written to churches. 
And here Jesus is and saying, let me in. Listen, you're trying to be a good father? Let me in. You're trying to have good success with your finances? Let me in. You're trying to be a good spouse? Let me in. And the whole time we're pushing God aside and saying, I got it. I learned this new thing this week, and if I speak kindly to my wife, she's going to speak kindly to me all the time. That ain't going to happen. You failed again. You failed again. Let me in. Let me in. Can I encourage you? Let Jesus in. You say, Pastor Jones, I already know Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. He already resides in my heart. But pay attention, please. Let him into every part of your life. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 says, keep your heart with all diligence. Why? For out of it are the issues of life. Let Jesus come in. He's knocking. We can't just replace the bad. We need to completely and utterly get it out. We need to replace the bad with Jesus. Listen, I, in my most wonderful state, am a horrible husband. I, in my most wonderful state, am a horrible father. I am a horrible leader. I am not good at anything I do. In fact, the Bible tells me there is none good. So as much as I think, well, I'm saved. I got Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I'm going to be a good father. And I'm going to figure this out, and I'm going to do more things. Listen, you are either with Jesus or you're against him. You are either gathering or scattering. In that same passage of Revelation chapter 3, Jesus talks about being lukewarm. He says, I will spew thee out of my mouth. You need to be either cold or hot. You're either with Satan or or you're with Christ. Let me ask you this morning. Do you want to see transformation in your life? I didn't say reformation, I said transformation. Do you want to see transformation in your life? Then hear this. We need more of Jesus. The only hope here, don't miss this. The only hope for our country is Jesus. I really don't care where you stand politically because that's not going to change anything. The only thing that's going to change this country is Jesus. The only hope for your marriage is Jesus. The only hope for your marriage is Jesus. So what do we do? I've already accepted him as my personal savior. What do I do? Reach out to him. Reach out to that doorknob of your heart and let him in. And what does the Bible say? I will sup with him and he with me. So what do you do? You spend more time with him. There are so many of us that are not with Jesus. There are so many of us that are not spending time with Jesus. I, not just, hear me. Not just once a day in your devotions. Not just every once in a while when you think about it or at meals when you're praying for your food. Every moment of every single day, spending time with Jesus. 
I would love to take another hour and tell you what that looks like. But Jesus is ever-present. You can feel that anger rising up in you. Jesus, what do I do here? You can feel that irritation rising up in front of your children, and you say, Jesus, what do I do? Jesus, I need you. Listen, if you want to transform your life, if you want to be different than you were before, we need more Jesus. Reach out to him. The only hope we have in reaching out to our city, which is our theme this year, reach out, go out and help the city. The only, the only hope we have of that is by spending more time with Jesus. We, wanna, we want to have religious reform. Man, I, I hope all these people start coming to church. Man, I, I, I live, I read my Bible, I, I pray, I, I even give money in the offering when the offering box is here. I do all these things and still we don't have Jesus. We don't live our lives every single day in every part of our lives with Jesus. Walk with him. Talk with him. Reach out to him. The only way we will ever be effective in every part of our lives, hear me, is not by trying harder. It's not by trying harder. It's by Jesus living through us. So my challenge to you today is this. Reach out to Jesus. Open the door. Let him in. And spend time with him. Spend more time with him today, hear me, than you did yesterday. Spend more time with him today than you did yesterday. And I'm telling you, what will happen is you'll begin acting like him. And before long, you'll look back at this day and you'll think, I don't know who I was before that. Literally transform your life. I could spend so much more time here. But tonight, today, reach out to Jesus. Spend time with him. Make the decision. Either you're with him, with him, or you're against him. You're either gathering with him or you're scattering. Choose. The decision is yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Father, I pray the people that hear this message will choose this day who they're going to serve. Father, I pray that they would put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of their mind, putting you on and put on the new man which is created in the image of Jesus Christ. Father, we need you today. Yes, I know I'm talking to religious people. I know I'm talking to the church Father, if there's one here today that does not know you as personal Savior, I know I've mentioned it a couple times. Father, they, they, they've never dealt with the sin of their lives. They don't know you. Father, I pray that today would be that day that they would realize that you died on the cross for their sins. You paid the sin debt for them. All they have to do is reach out to you, believing that you died. You paid the penalty of that sin. Us. I pray that if there's anyone here today 
that they would know that today. Father, for the rest, may religion, may our outward appearance never be a cheap substitute for what you're doing in our heart. Father, we need you in our heart. We need you working every single moment of every single day. We need to walk with you. So, Father, help us to view things differently. Father, we pray all these things in your name.